This episode is sponsored by the new Colour Revolution exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which looks at the way scientific breakthroughs in the Victorian period enabled dramatic changes in the use of colour in fashion, painting and other objects. You can hear one of the exhibition's curators, Charlotte Riberon, a professor of 19th century British literature at the Sorbonne, explaining more about the exhibition and some of the objects and ideas it explores in a special mini-episode in our podcast feed. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Later in this episode, I'll be asking John Lanchester about his first encounters with the LRB as a reader of the paper. But before that, I'm joined by Patricia Lockwood, poet, novelist, memoirist and contributing editor at the LRB, who has written the diary in the latest issue of the paper about meeting the Pope. In June this year, she was one of 200 or so artists invited to an audience with Pope Francis in the Sistine Chapel to mark the 50th anniversary of the inauguration of the Vatican Museum's collection of modern art. In her LRB diary, she describes the encounter and also her adventures in Rome before and afterwards with her friend Hope, who she refers to in the piece as her lady's companion. Colm Tabin, writing in the LRB in 2021, looked back over Jorge Mario Bergoglio's career as a Jesuit priest in Argentina during the dictatorship, as Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires and as Pope Francis, and described him as always hard to pin down on any matter. Patricia Lockwood didn't pin the Pope down, though she did hold on to his hands for longer than he perhaps wanted. Hello Patricia, and thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Um, and thanks also, I guess, to the Pope for having me. It was the main thing. Yeah, I was I was tempted to go the full Alan Partridge and refer to the LRB Pope cast. But perhaps, um... I didn't even it didn't even occur to me. There were so many puns that I could have made so many jokes that were not available to me at that time. I am a little concerned. So my lady's companion, Hope, that is a pseudonym. That's not her real name. So I'm definitely going to reveal her identity pretty soon here. But I'll take it as far as I can, just like mentally rhyming hope and pope. That's like the route I'm going to take in order to not reveal her her very dangerous identity. Her face appeared on, on your Twitter feed, I think. Didn't you post a selfie of the two of you? Or was that not really her? Yes. No, it was her. That was very much her. She was there not just as a lady's companion to save my life, but as a documentarian. She was the one, I think I maybe took 10 pictures the entire time I was in Rome because I just kept pointing at things and being like, Hope, get that, (laughs) get that over there. That's good. Make sure you get that. She's much more obviously artistic. She, She really belonged in the Sistine Chapel, whereas I have no idea what I was doing there. (laughs) So we should probably get to, um, yeah, get to what you were doing there. But I thought there's a, I mean, you mentioned in your, in your memoir, pre-study, you, you wrote that Pope Francis is proving to be a figure worthy of some study. And on the day that book was published, you tweeted, it looks like we've got a stunning blurb from the big guy himself. No, Pope Francis. <laughs> so did, you, did you ever think when you were writing those sentences that one day you would meet him and hold his hand? hold his hand, grip his hand, really, um, so that he had to wrench it away. No, and in fact, I didn't even remember writing those lines. It's quite funny. Um, I feel very safe knowing that Pope Francis himself has not read Priest Daddy. This is all in the recommendation of um, Bishop Tighe, who 
who invited me um, and who is a fan and has an excellent sense of humor. But yeah, I, I'm very safe in knowing that like Frankie himself has not touched a copy of this book, has not seen it, does not know who I am, thinks of me simply as sweet pregnant woman that he met in the Sistine Chapel who wouldn't let go of his hand. But yeah, he is interesting. I think I'm, I may be primarily interested in him as, as a humorist, right? That's where he he gets me. I don't stay very attuned to Pope things. I'm not directly on the Pope feed, I should say. It feels very familial to me, right? You don't exactly want to know what your uncles are up to, but there are certain things that make their way through. So, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not reading his encyclicals, but if he does something funny, then then I know about it. Okay, the, the Pope jokes, but his um immediate predecessor benedict mm, the 16th mm, shall we direct involvement in your in your father's becoming a catholic yes kid. so he's yeah he's the one who let my dad through the gates um he signed off on it he has the paperwork signed by by ratzinger and it my dad was a big benedict guy he is a big benedict guy so it was very funny my mother was extremely excited maybe even secretly about me meeting the pope but my dad was very and i think i did return home and i brought my mother the the rosary of renown the garnets that i found for her and i'm pretty sure that as soon as he got them in his hand my dad contrived to like remove the Pope's blessing and replace his blessing with one of his own. I think in his mind, that would be something he actually could do and would consider to be appropriate to do. So it may not be blessed by the Pope anymore. It might just be blessed by my dad. <laughs> so um, if we dial back a bit to the, the beginning, so how, how did you come to have your audience at the Vatican? What, what was this occasion that you and the other artists were invited to? It was to do with the contemporary art collection. So it was a, a celebration of the, the Vatican museums. I definitely never saw that contemporary art. There was, you know, we were in there, we were being ushered all around. There were these huge halls of heads, uh, statues and things. Never saw any of that extremely contemporary art that I was told about. No, I just opened my email one day and there was this invitation. And it was quite funny. It was funny the way they phrased it too. They were like, you know, they won't, pay for it. They were like Vatican style. They won't pay for it. You have to find your own way here. But you are invited uh, to be one of these 200. It was quite a motley crew, I'll say. You might have thought that like, maybe if people had been wearing name tags, or if there had been some kind of meet and greet where everyone found out who everyone else was. But no, there was nothing like that. It was just this big group dropped into the Sistine Chapel on, on that day. And I think there were maybe nine Americans there were very few writers. Like they knew what was up, right? I, I think that there were many more artists than there were writers. Alice McDermott was there. Jhumpa Lahiri was sitting behind me. I actually felt like something burning the back of my head and I like turned around and it was Jhumpa Lahiri. I was like, oh, there she is. And uh, Donna Tartt was supposed to be there, but she was not. That would have been something. Wouldn't Like in, in one of the little suits, that would have been great. And you, you were sitting next to uh, the designer, Ross Lovegrove, who plays quite quite a, a big role in the piece. <laughs> a big role. I really was happy about that. I would, obviously, it would have been wonderful to be sitting next to Ken Loach. I don't know that our conversations would have had quite the same um, vibrancy 
uh, as I had with Ross. And Ross was very useful, actually, because he was able to tell me who everyone was. So he could, you know, just like point to, to a certain quadrant of the room and be like, you know, there's this one, there's that one. Um, there were people that we knew were there. Abel Ferrara was there. He was one that I really would have liked to have met, but I didn't get to, I didn't get to encounter him. But yes, Ross was there um, sort of calming me and sort of uh, allowing me into the society. Yeah. And was Ken Loach there? He was. He was just one over. There was a very sweet scene actually where Ross helped him into his coat, uh, which I was very beautiful to see. Um, but we were just briefly introduced. But yes, it was supposed to be alphabetical, but Ross <laughs> circumvented that so that that was no longer the case, right? And there's this question which comes up twice in the piece was that one idea behind this I can call it a meet and greet, but it's not exactly the meet and a meet greet. And We're greet. just going to call it a <laughs> meet and greet. With the, yeah, yeah with um, the Pope. Can can Arsis and the Church be friends again? Yeah, I was very interested in this because it wasn't. It certainly wasn't posed that way, right? In the invitation, it was. It was a celebration, but I think that Bishop Tig was maybe a driver behind this. Um, I should introduce him. He is obviously uh, an Irish bishop. He's, he was my inn. Um, and he took me and Hope out to dinner the second night, I believe. And he posed this question. And you know, you're in this state of jet lag. I was in this state of extremity, which is sort of hinted at in the piece. I, I talk about the situation with Jason, but I can go into that a little more in a moment. But you know, basically, we we were just in this cult or bubble of illness, you know, in our home since since last August or September, um, when Jason had to have these surgeries. And then you're released into the world. And it's not just the world, but it's it's Rome, and into this larger context, and into this question, you know, can we be friends again? And I don't, I was very resistant. Um, and, and, you know, he he's like, No, I understand what you mean. But you don't want to think about it that way. But the invitations, if you look at someone like Andres Serrano being invited, I'm not sure if he's as big a deal in the UK as he is in the States, but he's quite like a cultural flashpoint here. You know, if you submerge a crucifix in a jar of urine piss, it's there's going to be like conversation about it in the States. But I mean, he's talking about people who are engaging, you know, with this figure, with these books, with this language, with, with this tradition. But yeah, the the way I pose it in my pieces, I do think it should be more like the Keats Vatican situation where they burn everything in my room when I die. Because also, I've been thinking about the you know the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Oh my God! The, the um, you wouldn't quite say that Michelangelo and the Pope of his day were friends exactly. Right. I mean, the relationship, the relationship between <laughs> exactly. artists and the Church in the Renaissance was not exactly a friendship. It was a it was more complicated than that, wasn't it? No. Well, it was like a productive antagonism, right? And and maybe that's a better way to think about it or a better way to put it. It's been funny to have the piece come out and have, you know, a certain percentage of people who aren't familiar with my work and my critique. You know, you, if you write a book called Priest Eddie, you have engaged with these ideas being like, congrats, you met the devil, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it's something, this is something I've already talked about. This is, you know, something I've thought about a great deal in my life. What happens when you do all that thinking, when you have all this personal history with the church, what happens when you get in that place? What occurs? I was so happy 
to have hope there, not just because she was an artist, not just because she was my friend and she was my refuge and, and kept me alive, but because she didn't have that history. So she was just, I was just able to sit back and watch someone be just very, very joyful that they got to sit in the Sistine Chapel for three hours taking pictures and and watching the goings on. I didn't have anything like that. So I, I was able to to feel that through her. So that was the moment. That was what I received was like getting to see someone else have that in an uncomplicated or more uncomplicated way. Yeah, because I mean, visiting it as a tourist is a different, I mean, it's quite horrible, really. <laughs> no, tell me. So, so you've been... I think I've been three times as a tourist to the Vatican. The last time was 15 years ago, and it was, you go in through, it's incredibly crowded, obviously, mm-hmm. and there's one door that you go in, but you come in on one side and you leave on the other side. And just in front of me going in, there was a woman who got into the and had a panic attack, I mean, whether it was the crowd or who, well, for whatever reason, but she, you know, she needed to get out of the room, and the guards were like, were stopping her leaving, says, no, you have to leave on the other side. This is oh, the God. entrance. You cannot leave this way. Um <laughs> But she did sort of fought her way out and it was okay. And then, then once you're in and people are sort of murmuring and talking about the pictures and then the guards are shouting, silencio, in this incredibly <laughs> aggressive way. It's like the only, the only re- really noisy people are the guards who are telling you to be quiet. So it's quite hard to look at the paintings, really, because you're so distracted by the, the performance of the of the the encounter between the tourists and the, the guardians of the of right the, the performance yeah. of the encounter yes this this theater right so and i mean i think a panic attack is a reasonable response i do talk about you are terrified and we there's a specific term right for what michelangelo inspires in people the, this this feeling of awe this feeling of terror which is the thing that i feel that i personally inspired in the pope himself so i have a little bit of that too but yeah, this is the quality of his work. This is the quality that they spoke, or the terms they spoke of him. And I think even in his lifetime, that he that he struck people with this terror, this awe. I don't know if it was the proportions. You know, we saw his statues as well in other places, and you felt a little of that. But there's something about the leap of air, just the vault of air, just going straight up. And we were brought in very gently, and it was. You're just milling around, sort of like, and, and Ross Lovegrove is pointing people out to you. Um, and, like, he knows who's rich, right, and who's not. And it, that's the, it's, it's, it was a very grounding sort of thing to be hearing about in the Sistine Chapel. But, like, you were, I went in and, like, my, my chin was shaking, which is not even, I didn't know you could isolate that part of your body to have it separately trembling from the rest of you. But that's that's what happened to me, that I was absolutely struck and it just seemed like it was just going on. I think right above me, or maybe everyone feels this way, was the, you know, the fingers reaching toward each other. And you just look up and you think, oh, there they are. But then behind me, hope, perfectly happy, just like glorying in this, right? I'm not sure whether she felt terror. I should have asked her that. She was in it for the Caravaggio. So she <laughs> maybe is not as much of a Michelangelo person, but yeah, I'll find out from her whether she felt, in fact, the terror and the awe or the panic attack. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I have heard a story. I don't know. I have no way of knowing it's true. But during the restoration, that um, an Englishman, a teacher of art history, who somehow managed to get in there while they were restoring it, and he went up on the scaffolding. And when no one was looking, he he licked the ceiling. <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, <laughs> yeah... <laughs> I mean, I guess it does inspire something 
childish. I mean, you can experience like childish reverence, which I suppose is what I was feeling. But then you also did have, you know, the guy running around like, like posting the Pope as if, and people were like, oh, he's posting the Pope as if that's the worst thing you can do. And it, it really didn't occur to you till later, like, why wasn't I the one, you know, streaking through the Sistine Chapel, like painted with mud or something in some like protest. And it just like, it, it would not have occurred to me at all. And, you know, I, I, do go streaking around later. My reverence like comes to me later or is expressed in a different way. But there, that's that's it's not what I felt. Um, I don't know what I expected to feel or whether it's even like interesting, you know, what a particular person feels in the Sistine Chapel. But you are, you're you're in this state of extremity. I knew he wasn't well. He did seem very tired and he had, you know, had this this similar situation, these um, same surgeries that my husband had had and and my husband, of course, continuing to be so ill, you just felt, I don't know, a, a line of much more human connection, maybe than you expect to feel. And you made some reference to that, which you thought maybe he didn't understand. Oh, to the Pope. <laughs> right. So I'm going up to meet the Pope. And again, I was very, 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 very grateful for Ross Lovegrove here because I was sort of preparing myself. As I said, everyone is like giving him these things, their own works. This just would never have occurred to me in my life to have wrapped up a copy of Priestdaddy or something and handed it to this man. And it was so funny because he just gave it to a guy behind him and they like put it on a pile. <laughs> it was just like really hilarious in its way. But... Ross, I think, had stayed in one of the convent situations that you can stay in in Vatican City, which is, I think, initially where Jason was going to put me before we we got my lady's uh, lady's companion on board. And in his room at night, he had drawn this image, the quantum eternity of love. So I do think that Ross got down on his knees in front of me and was just really spending an incredibly long time giving him this drawing. And, you know, you get a little bit not irritated, but you start to think too much about what you're going to do. And I just got up there and I completely like, oh, I screwed it totally just got up there. And I think I said my name um, as I'm gripping his hands with all my strength. And then I like point to, you know, my stomach and I say, I, I hope your tummy feels better, which is again, a talk about like a reversion to childhood. I have no idea where that came from. He's very confused, not knowing my personal history, wrenches his hands away you know, and there was something like he was just going back into the thing that he was supposed to do. Like the maybe you're not as a pope comfortable in a room full of 200 artists who are like, you know, soaking crucifixes in piss and that sort of thing. Maybe you're not 100% comfortable, but you are when you're like, oh, here's a pregnant lady. I can bless her stomach. That's like what I was put on this earth to do. And there's just something, you know, like some happiness and peace. And he makes the sign of the cross over your stomach. So our thought was that potentially that blessing could transfer. So I got home and I kind of like laid on top of Jason with my belly, like on his, so that like to transfer the blessing. But you do think about it like, it's almost a, a, a physics problem, right? Like how far can a blessing go? Can it bounce? Like what is its qualities? <laughs> a quasar, like what does, is this Does it this deteriorate with each, every time you pass it on? Does it? Exactly, exactly. So I had all these things in my purse, right, to be blessed. And I have like all these rosaries. I have like little, you know, like little rocks that look like vaginas, like metals, scapulars, um, like little pieces of coral. I have no idea. I'm just like rattling when I go up there, right? I've got the tampon. I've got the blessed tampon. And I just put everything sort of in a box when I got home to see, perhaps to 
um, investigate whether there is a principle of deterioration or whether, like, can the blessing be removed, as my father perhaps attempted to do to the rosary? Like, we don't know. We're going to find out more about this. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole question of relics and... I mean, you, you mentioned Keats earlier and, the, you know, the Vatican ordering everything to be burned. And you visited the house that he died in by the, by the Spanish steps. And there's something, I mean, that's a kind of shrine, isn't it? And there are bits of his, you know, all the relics of him. And he's sort of, people who, you know, think they're too sophisticated to, to be interested in saints' relics will still go and worship at the shrine of Keats, as it were. Yeah, and it's really divided, I think with writers and readers, the people who venerate those things, you have like a Patti Smith type, right? Who's like constantly touching people's dusty hems and and writes about this. And then you have people who, who don't want to have anything to do with like the person or the personal effects at all, who don't want to visit the rooms, don't want to go to the tombstones. I think I am interested, maybe not in the relics, but when I read, I do feel that I, I go into that place, into that body, into that context. You know, this person's what it's like to be in the mind, right? At the moment that they're struck with this idea. So you're watching King Charles doing his weird Italian introduction, um, you know, at the foot of the Spanish steps. And again, like I, I did sort of have the idea that the Spanish steps had personally killed him. Like he fell down or something, right? Like you read about this, he died at the foot of the Spanish steps. So I had this idea sort of when I was a kid where I was like, I think the steps were actually involved. <laughs> and then you get into this place and King Charles is talking about his Nona, and then you you actually, you know, hear the line of Keats about the alien corn and you're just struck. I mean, that it it is the entire thing. So you do feel something in those places. You do feel something when the bishop, you know, quotes scripture to you. Who do you say that I am? You ultimately like feel something in those places. And it, I don't know, a kind of dissolution. But then you go upstairs and you do have the personal effects. You have the life mask. You have the death mask. You have this incredible, incredible mask of Byron, where he looks like um, J. Walter Weatherman from Arrested Development. I don't know if that's a reference that transfers. Um, I'll tweet that later so that people can see. And you do. You are you are taken by these effects. Like they're you know something like a, a life mask is an exalted thing, but then there are very humble things as well. And there's something I don't know very humbling or holy about thinking about this entire room being scoured out right by this force that i'm i'm to meet that i'm to confront or come face to face with the next morning you're thinking about all of those things and you you were writing your piece for the lrb on david foster wallace at the time <laughs> or you just finished writing it or you were immersed in it anyway i was highly immersed no i hadn't finished it and when i write you know the criticism you can probably tell you go very deeply into the place where you're just reading nothing else sometimes for months so what had happened was my husband after the events of bowel guy um last year he had had another sequel flop uh last august and he had a hemicolectomy the same surgery that the pope had and it seemed to go well and then he had massive internal bleeding almost died and then he had this very long road to recovery so one of the pieces i was writing at that time was the george saunders piece and the next thing i believe that i moved on to was the david foster wallace and both of those just were highly intensive reading and they were things that seemed very close to life and death itself so i felt very close to the skin of things and i felt that i had hardly even looked up you know from this situation of illness 
or from these these books um, by this man that I had been reading. And then suddenly there I was ejected into this place and they freaking love him there. It was really, really beautiful going into all the bookstores and just seeing stacks and stacks of his books and evidence of this ongoing life that people, you know, continue to read this person, that they continue to be meaningful or, or that they commune meaningfully with this person's thoughts. And I just, I don't know, it feels... It made me happy to to see those things there. I, it was really funny to receive the bag. <laughs> it's like good fiction's job is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. It I don't know. It just feels like all these things have to do with you, right? But yeah. So part of it, I was explaining to Hope as we went. You know, when you're writing a personal piece like this, you are picking up these observations. You're trying to you're operating in some sort of realm of the factual, a realm of the absurd, and then a realm of the profound, like all three at the same time. And you're like gathering details from all of these realms, right? And these things come to you and you, you just sort of have to to let them have some congruence in you, right? So if you're in this place, you've been writing about David Foster Wallace for months. Yeah, you get his little tote and, <laughs> and you carry it along like proudly, right? Because it's something to do with you. And when the, the pickpockets on the Metro come and... <laughs> <laughs> on your lap you're open to that as well I'm just, well if you think about it I, anyone who's ever met me it's no question that if someone who is a pickpocket comes onto the metro and looks around and thinks who is my target that I'm like the first probably <laughs> that you would look at first of all I am wearing this huge like fanny pack I don't what do you call them that's probably not bum a bag. fanny pack yeah bum bag it's almost worse actually I'm going to keep calling it <laughs> fanny pack um, call it whatever you like you're yeah. especially not supposed to have those because pickpockets go right for those but you know we had put this whole trip together in, in like a couple days or something I didn't really have all the accessories I needed so I'm just standing there you know holding the pole and I genuinely had no idea I was like these are strange feelings. Like this is strange behavior. What are these children doing? And you get off in hopes like, yeah, they're pickpockets. And you just think, would I ever have hit on that word in my entire life? <laughs> like Ongoing, like experiencing this, would it ever have occurred to me that that was what was going on? No. But luckily, triple reinforced camping zippers, a man bought that fanny pack uh, they're not getting your garnets. But then you're also just like, you know, had I known that that's what was going on, like, yes, here, I have some euros, you can have those. There was this other element where you feel completely foolish because you're like, well, yeah, no, I don't need these anymore. I'm going back to the States tomorrow. Like, just tell me what you want from me and you can have my euros. <laughs> At one point in the Pope's address, which um you describe rather wonderfully is just being something like the repeating of the words bambini morta and che bella but anyway it's, it's on the vatican website so i i looked it up to see what he did say and at one point he said like the biblical prophets you this is talking to artists you confront things that at times are uncomfortable you criticize today's false myths and new idols it's empty talk the ploys of consumerism the schemes of power this is an intriguing aspect of the psychology of artists, the ability to press forward and beyond in a tension between reality and dream. Often you do this with irony, which is a marvellous virtue. <laughs> so I was wondering, do you, do you think of yourself ever as being like an ironic biblical prophet? Yes, exactly how I think of myself all the time. <laughs> yeah, so we had these, we had the programs in the the address was printed out and everyone was following along. They were reading, but it's, it's much more interesting, right. To like kind of lift your head and like look at the Pope and his wheelchair and just like catch the few words that you can. Right. And it was just, you know, children, babies, beautiful over and over again. Um, but I was interviewed afterwards and I did specifically talk about the ironic part, you know, if, if there is like room for this irony, because it is, 
one of my modes of operation, <laughs> certainly. Um, like, if there is room for that sort of thing, like if you're invited into this place under this umbrella as, again, someone who is engaging, I mean, it it is a mode. You are seeing something, right? I've been thinking a lot because I was, I was talking about how it was done and, and how you write this sort of thing and how you operate in these, these different realms of factual, profound, absurd. Those are the three for me. A lot of times with, with these humorous pieces, people will assume that these like little bits are made up, right? So I wrote that, um, that piece for you about Knausgård, right? And I opened with um, the part about the Elvis impersonator. And I think it, there was particularly one guy online who was like, there's no way. He's like, the amazing fact checkers at the LRB, I guess, didn't look this one up. And I've got like a newspaper clipping, right? And it's like, here's the Elvis impersonator. Um, I wrote a piece about Donald Trump once where I go into this convention and there's this, you know, gigantic jumbotron with like a picture of Melania embracing like an inflatable shamu, right? And I have this in my piece and the editor's like, you can't just make these things up, right? You can't like just say these things happen. And I'm like, here's a picture. This was real. So you have to be tuned to this particular dimension, I think. And and you meet the Pope, you do your, your interview, and then you go into this place where they're like serving Sting's wine. And I, like, you have to notice those things. Those things are there to be noticed. Maybe it is irony. Maybe it's a particular lens, but maybe it's also just a thing that's happening in this parallel track to these other things that you have to notice that you have to pay attention to as much as the profound, as much as the factual. Yeah, the Sting's, Sting's wine. Sting's wine. Might, it might seem to some people like a what the Pope calls a ploy of consumerism, but um, presum- <laughs> presumably it's <laughs> presumably it's not. The message in the bottle is uh, I don't know. I mean, was it because Sting's an artist and he couldn't come to the? I have genuinely you know, he, he wasn't no able to come to the meet and greet, so he, no he sent a few cases of of his his best Sangiovese to. His vino. And I deeply regret not being able to drink any of this wine. I knew that I had to stay sharp, right? I, I couldn't I couldn't partake of this Sangiovese. But Hope, and notice how well I'm doing not revealing her secret identity. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've done very well so far. <laughs> so she's simultaneously flying, I think, on the little Nespresso, which was the other beverage on offer, and then also a, a glass of, of Sting's Vintage. <laughs> And it just again, I was I was able to feel this perfect happiness through her that she is getting this experience of you know, Sting's wine, the Pope's Nespresso, the Sistine Chapel. I don't know. It just becomes like this event of coll- like collusion, right? So everyone else is drinking it. Obviously, everyone else is like probably finding it very funny, but you also have to slip the brochure into your bag. Like that's the, that's the thing you have to do. But it, it does all sound oddly dreamlike. The idea that you're in the Sistine Chapel drinking Sting's wine with the Pope and there's the coffee and, and it kind of... And yeah. no one knows who anyone is. So you're just like milling through these crowd And you're occasionally... There was one guy who was dressed in like beautiful... It was very Euro. It was like um, the black hair, like eyeliner, lots of leather, lots of studs. And we just had no idea who he was. And Hope's idea is that she would have another glass of Sting's wine and then, you know, go up to him and be like, I know you from Berlin and just hope that he would sort of reveal his name. (laughs) But it was, it was completely surreal. Like, you know, I met Alice McDermott. She was very convinced that we had like known each other previously in Paris, that we had had this, you know, this time together in Paris. And I'm like, no, I've never met you before in my life. Yeah. So these people that 
in the art sense, you've seen their work, but in the the writing sense, it's like, oh, you've you've read their books and you're milling among them. Or Ross Lovegrove, you've perhaps sat in his chair. I don't know what the previous angle of contact would be there. But you're just like, you swept up into this place. I don't know. It was almost like we were there to be sentenced or something. Or like we had all died at the same time and had just been like ushered into this room for judgment. And one by one, you go up, you hand your your gift to the Pope. You, they throw it on the pile and, and you, you know, the, the, the sentence comes down. I guess we know what mine was. Pregnancy for all time. <laughs> go, go and join the rest of the goats in there. <laughs> yeah, the, the people, the sheep, the goats get correct get stings wine, and the, the, the sheep get the uh, get the good stuff. But um, I mean, is there anyone other than the Pope? I mean, who, in terms of it, would have been? I'm not sure what the adjective is, but I mean, presumably, well, maybe you've been to the White House, but is it going to the White House to meet the president, or I don't know, meeting Madonna or whoever? But is I mean, is there anyone who is there anyone? This is a really good question. A.S. Byatt just died. She would have been one. Um, Tom York would be the other one. Presidents, I feel total revulsion toward all presidents. And I feel that I am in Poets Are Against Presidents. We're in an antagonistic relationship with them, right? It is it is a little bit more complicated because the men of the cloth, right? It feels so familial to me. So I walk into a room that's just like filled with all these guys in gowns and I feel totally for some reason like home, like comforted, calm, um, at peace, like with people I know. And it's a very, very strange feeling because, you know, if, if you look at something like pre you'll often then find out terrible things about people or, you know, like, like histories of cover-ups and collusions and things like that. But there's something about the immediacy, uh, just having grown up with it, that I get in a room with these men and I'm just like, okay, all right, here I am back in the business, right? <laughs> Just when you think you've got out, they pull you back, back in. in. <laughs> but you, you describe having a brief moment of panic and asking yourself, "Is it wrong to meet?" Is the it pope? wrong to meet the pope? <laughs> so why? What? In what way did you? I think again because you don't follow along particularly, and he is a surprising pope, and you are aware sometimes, you know, when he drops bangers, and and again because it is kind of familial. You think, all right, he's sitting down to eat. Pasta with trans women, yes, banger. Like he's, you know, speaking out about Gaza, yes, banger. But you're not really following along. So it's like, I, you know, you think back and you're like, perhaps there's some deep, dark secret of this Pope that I'm not fully aware of. But then you think sort of like, okay, Ken Loach is here. Like, that's probably okay, right? Martin Scorsese was here. Like, that's, that's okay, isn't it? I don't know. You don't know about these things. Like I said, there is this like reaction from a certain percentage of people who aren't really familiar with my back catalog that's like, yeah, you met the devil. And it's like, I, yeah, we, like, we all are face-to-face -face with these questions, right? It's not something that will ever leave me or that I'll ever stop thinking about or wondering about. I mean, I was like a very, very faithful Catholic at one, at one time. Oh, and I have met another Pope. I didn't specifically uh, get face-to-face -face with him, but... After we got back from, you know, Sting's Wine, all of that, my friend from high school texts me and she's like, you're now experiencing Pope juice for the second time in your life. And that's quite true. So JP2 um, came to St. Louis when I was, a, let's see, a junior in high school. And we sang for him. And it was a major, major event. I think that um, all of this took place in like a hockey stadium. There were special like papal branded M&Ms for the event. So people really 
go quite hysterical uh, when they meet this guy. So it, it was my second time. It felt a little different, though. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've mentioned your chin shaking. And in the piece, you, you, you compare that to Sinead O'Connor's hands when she ripped up a photograph of, of JP2 on Saturday Night Live in 1992. And that she, um, she tore it up just after singing Bob Marley's War. And she said, fight the real enemy. Yeah, and that you know it was thirty years ago and all the rest of it, but it was um, it was quite a moment. No, I have chills right now just thinking about it. Like, and sh- and you're thinking about that in that place, you know, running around with like your midriff showing or streaked with mud or whatever. Like that would have been something. Posting the Pope, like that could have been a small form of protest, but it's really like that. Just how quiet it was, right? And seeing that that human aspect of her, you know, that she's like flooded with the same humors as the rest of us, like adrenaline probably in her hands at that moment and and the enormity of what she was doing and, and she was completely right and she was she was totally vilified and and then after you know decades and then after someone's dead everyone's like well yeah I guess she was right about that thing but you know in in the moment it's, there's very little support for that sort of thing and the reason she did it was about the decades of of child abuse by priests sexual abuse and all forms of abuse of, yeah. of vulnerable children by the clergy in Ireland specifically but everywhere else and was that history I mean as part of your question is it wrong to meet the Pope and people saying he's the devil is that because of that history I think for some it is you know if I were to feel that way me leaving the church had much more to do with that angle of things I think you know other people are maybe talking a little bit more about like let's let's melt down the gold and and rubies and jewels and things and like redistribute these things among the poor. But for me, that was that was the difficult thing for me. We in my household, again, growing up among priests, my father being in like the vocations office, you understood that people knew these things, right? You grew up and you were like, you know, these were passed around as units of information. Like people knew these things. When I talk to people now and, and it's like, well, none of us knew that. It's You you really don't believe it. It's not something I personally believe um, just because I saw, I mean, priests were like the biggest gossips in the world too, as I knew them. It was like hen parties when they would get together. Um, you know, it was part of the bloodstream of things. My shock, and this was just a little bit after I had graduated high school, was in knowing that people didn't know right? So I had had a much broader basis for understanding this from a young age and then had to reckon with the shock um, that this was not a, like a more widely known history. Yeah. Or if people didn't want to know or somehow chose not to know that they did know, but somehow chose not to know at the same time. I think that that's true. Um, and it did sometimes have to do with like what side you were on. If you were like mm, more traditional, if you were more progressive, you would like align yourself with a certain bishop or archbishop. And then it would be, you know, the one that you were against, the problem was over there and not on this side, but it was, it was all, it was everywhere. It was spread across all sides um, and it worked its way into everything. So you're, you're sitting with that in that place, but then also the feeling that you yourself are a child again in that place it's very hard to reconcile those things. I mean, the Pope talked a lot about children and the ways in which artists right. like children. Right. Um, but, and also, but you, throughout your piece, there's a kind of children and babies keep coming up through it. I mean, is that, seems to me that's partly in a sort of an oblique engagement with, with 
well, with, with this, I'm not sure what the word is, problem seems too weak a word, but you have the way in which the, the child has an image yeah. in Christian iconography. Yeah. And how that sort of comes into conflict with the treatment of, of actual children. Right. It wasn't purposeful. It's just something, again, it's like a detail that just keeps falling into your lap um, as you're as you're going through this experience. But I suppose I am always thinking about that when I think about faith and the church and belief. And and I believe it, too, that, you know, artists, writers in a way are children. But you that can also be a way to disclaim any sort of, <laughs> you know, responsibility that, that you're you're struck with wonder at the world. But you also have to know things which is continuously this balance that I try to strike between being, you know, obviously one of these people who somehow manages to make it to adulthood and remain a child and having to know things and having to to give information to other people about what you see, what you've experienced, what you've been through in your life. Yeah. But if you go into everything saying, oh, yeah, I know, I, if, thinking you already know everything, then you, right. you know, you don't pick up on anything. You know, you need to be open to these um as you, you know, clearly are in this piece, all these the observations you have to be open to. Yeah, possibly too. To open. the loose tile in right? Keats's bedroom. Like this total <laughs> regression. <laughs> Just sitting there. And I wish, I mean, my outfit was so ridiculous. I do think it was potentially a swimsuit cover-up. Hope looked quite, quite chic in her Birkenstocks. I'm just sitting there in this, this like nun garment or this like really a big baby baptismal outfit. I, did, I thought that the dress code was funny. And I, I did like Jason's comment that you can't be whiter than the Pope. He, he has to be the whitest. You can't like, be the white one in his presence. <laughs> it's, like going to, it's like going to a wedding, right? Only the bride exactly, can only the bride so, yeah. can wear I mean, there was one guy in like an electric blue suit. That was as far afield, I think, as anyone really went. <laughs> there's, there's someone in, well, on the video, it looks like a, sadly, I didn't, I couldn't spot you in the video on the uh, Vatican website, although maybe you're relieved about that. But the, um, there is someone in a sort of lilac. Yes. Lilac suit, which is quite. Um, that was nice. Striking. No one got yelled at or anything. <laughs> you didn't get the Silencio guys were not there <laughs> to kick us out. Would you go again? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I think, hmm, like, is there more for me to find there? Is there a, a point after which, like, openness is? But it might be. He might be awkward. He might say, "And where? And and did you bring your baby? Who exactly. I the last time you came? <laughs> how did that go? <laughs> well, maybe I would go to show him the the baby. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. It was it was a very um. It did feel like a one-off, right? Like when I received the email, I was like, Shit, I, I no, can't do that, can I? But Jason was like, no, obviously you do that. Like obviously that's something that you go and do. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess I will. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know if, the, if you go back for seconds. I think that the, the blessing, if it, if it has staying power, like maybe we just leave it there. Yeah. And um, how is Jason? He's doing better. So the Pope didn't cure him exactly, but the several rounds of heavy duty antibiotics that he took around the same time did help. So yeah, it has been very, very slow. And you do read something like this. And if you're not perhaps, you know, familiar with what is going on, it's like, wow, this really seems like a woman at the end of her rope here. It's like, she's like, 
the time, the, the end of her life, even perhaps. Um, but it, it was it was all due to that. It was um, really just being in this place where suddenly you find yourself thinking really irrational things like, well, maybe the Pope can do it. Maybe the Pope can cure this guy. Like maybe maybe this is the way. Maybe this is the 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 way that this can happen. But yes, he's the Pope and antibiotics, I guess, working working in hand in hand. <laughs> maybe did maybe did their work on Jason. <laughs> Patricia Lockwood, thank you very much. Mm, thank you. John Lanchester now talking about how he first came across the LRB and a favourite piece from the archive. When I was at school, there was a, a room for six forms only that had newspapers and magazines and some books lying around. And the brother of a school contemporary of mine, I think, was, was early on to the LRB. And I can't remember if he talked whichever teacher was in charge of it or someone into subscribing. And I remember seeing it and thinking, what's that? And it must have been, so this must have been 1980 because that was my last year at school. And it must have been just after it stopped. The paper was no longer a pullout inside. Uh, Mary Kenny Wilmers always used to talk about it being a marsupial pullout inside the New York Review of Books. And so it must have been like sort of summer of 1980. So really, really weirdly early. And I remember hearing that it was this new thing. And I do remember thinking, oh, that won't be around for long because it just seemed pitched in a very different way from everything else. Um, and then the first piece I remember really cutting through and making me very aware of the paper in, in a kind of engaged, active way. It was, I was a graduate student in 1985, and it was Angela Carter. The piece is called Nooves Hooves in the Trough, January 85. And um, it's Angela Carter reviewing the official foodie handbook, which had just come out, An Omelette and a Glass of Wine by Elizabeth David, and Chez Panisse Menu Cooking by Alice Waters which are actually three books I own and have always really liked. But it's an absolutely excoriating thing about the cult of food and sort of food worship as a modern thing. And it has this sort of brilliantly um, mordant thing because it was just when the Ethiopian famine had attracted lots of attention. It's a thing that led up to Live Aid, actually, just a few months later. Uh, and she quotes the sort of juxtaposition of the foodie handbook with these images of starving Ethiopians on our screens and... Imagines, you know, to trudge miles across drought-devastated terrain to score half a crust of bread. That bread alone was worth the journey, they probably remark, just as Elizabeth Davis says of a trip to an out-of-way eatery in France. It's absolute ouch! Um, and I was kind of outraged because I was, it was just the point, as a graduate student, that's quite a common point where you actually start getting interested in cooking because, you know, you're left to your own devices, you know, you're, you're, you've got nothing to do all day except try and avoid writing your thesis. You're living in a shared house, you're broke, so you can't eat out. And so that's quite a common point when people get interested in cooking, including me. Uh, and so, so I just developed this new interest and suddenly this thing comes along which tells you that everything's terrible. But yet, it was such an extraordinary piece of writing. And um, going back and looking again, I was, it, it's weirdly, um, it's got this very high moral tone combined with a kind of energy and brio in the writing. It's a very Carter combination. And it builds and builds this thing when she gets to Alice Waters, who actually is kind of a hero of mine, a hero of lots of people who are interested in food. But it builds and builds this thing about, and she talks about a ripe melon and the value Waters finds in the melon and the effort and blah, blah. And builds this thing saying, anyone could have chosen a perfect melon. But unfortunately, most people don't take the time or make an effort to choose carefully 
and understand what that potentially sublime fruit should be. Right, that's Walters. And then Carter says, She talks as if selecting a melon were an existential choice of a kind to leave Jean-Paul Sartre stumped. This rapt, bug-eyed concern with the small print, not even of life, but of gluttony, is, I think, genuinely decadent. You know, it's got a hell of a sting, that genuinely decadent. And especially when you think that that's 1985, you know, that's when food culture in this in the UK was like a byword for kind of catastrophic backwardness. When you think that we've been moving for nearly four decades in the direction of increased obsession with food, uh, it's pretty bracing to think that it was, you know, already seeming decadent back then when, you know, was barely embryonic um and that was the first thing that really cut through for me as a paper as a thing where you come across really really good writing that was really challenging sort of morally and ethically while also being fun and engaging and really having that very strong sense of a writer's voice i mean there was nowhere else would have published that at that point there was nowhere else you could read anything like that at that point and also there was no such thing as being viral back then because you know basically we're still excited about them having discovered electricity but you know it was the first thing that everyone I knew was talking about it and was quite exercised about about that and for me that felt about the point you know and I don't think I've missed an issue of the paper basically ever since um, as I say that was the thing I was outraged by and stimulated by and in terms of engaging with the LRB as a reader um, that's where it all began for me. You can read Angela Carter's piece on foodies, as well as all of John Lanchester's pieces, and Patricia Lockwood's, including her diary on meeting the Pope, and everything or anything else in the LRB archive, by subscribing to the London Review of Books. There's a link for that in the podcast description. This episode was produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.